Welcome to Off the Page. I'm Crystal Siracus. Jennifer Crow is my guest today. She's been writing poetry since she was a little girl. Her poems explore the edges of time and space and of myth and lore. Her poetry has appeared in many print and electronic places over the past quarter of a century, including Analog Science Fiction Magazine, Uncanny Magazine, Kaleidotrope, and more. And her poem still was a nominee for the Pushcart Prize. She joins me today to talk about her work and to read us a few poems. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So tell us about your journey towards becoming a poet. What got you writing in the first place? That is an old story. When when I was a kid, we lived on a farm. There was nobody around. There was not much to do other than the fun we made ourselves. And so my dad brought home these sheaves of of leftover computer paper, you know, the kind that were all attached together in accordion fold. And he handed us those and a couple of old three ring binders and said, go entertain yourselves. Probably they were tired of trying to entertain us. My sister, is, who is three years younger than I, and me. And for some reason, I was, I think I was in second grade at the time. And we had done some basic poetry, you know, little rhyming things about holidays or the weather or animals and I don't know why I thought wow I could do that because you know that's a very weird thing for an eight-year-old to think but I did and so I I took my my ream of computer paper and my three-ring binder and I went and sat under one of the apple trees down by the pasture and I started writing and they were of course terrible poems but I just never stopped. Is there a particular poem from those early days that you that you remember? Um, let's see. Long ago, when the earth was young, a bee had sorrow and the earth was stung. With a giant bellow, the universe rung when a bee had sorrow and the earth was stung. That was my very first poem. So. Now I have embarrassed myself before the entire world. <laughs> I I like that's surprisingly mature for an eight year old. Um, yeah, I guess so. Bella was not a normal eight year old word, but no. And thinking about the bee sorrow and the earth is stung. I definitely started out in in the more esoteric woo woo weird stuff poetry i you know i probably should have realized at that point that that's where my spiritual home was going to be i was gonna say so a lot of what you work in is in that as you call it woo woo territory um you write a lot of poems that are in that um i guess that umbrella of speculative fiction of science fiction of fantasy of right. horror what is it about those spaces that you're that you're drawn to um, I would say that one of the things is the library was one of my favorite spots as a kid. And I got, I found the, the section that was about world mythology and our library had this huge collection of books about world mythology. And so I started reading those and 
just sort of never stopped. I find it really interesting, both the ways that every culture has a unique vision about the world and how it came about, but that also there's the there's these threads that sort of wind through that where a lot of cultures meet that aren't necessarily geographically contiguous. And, you know, there's there's Cinderella stories in so many different cultures. There's vampire stories in so many different cultures. You know, there's something about those sorts of things that seem to ring true with us on an archetypal level as humans. So I think there's a real power there. When did you, I guess, when, you know, you started writing at a young age, did that continue until you started submitting and this, you know, became a pretty huge part of your identity as a person? I wrote a lot when I was a kid. I sent a submission of poems to Yankee Magazine when I was 12 and got a rejection. I think if they had realized I was 12, they might have not just sent me a form rejection, but I didn't tell them I was 12 because I realized even at that time that, you know, professional writers don't look for handouts, I guess, from, from editors, you know, you kind of have to earn your spot. And then I didn't send anything else out again until my last semester of college, but I wrote a lot of nerve ending poetry in the meantime, you know, I am a teenager and no one understands me and no one loves me and woes me the, the usual. Yeah. I was cleaning out a desk not too long ago and came across my high school poetry book. <laughs> oh goodness. The angst. So much, so much angst. <laughs> I think, I think you kind of have to get it out of your system and poetry is a great way to get out that angst without being harmful to yourself or others, I think. So I'm grateful that I had that outlet. You know, it's interesting. I think writing poems as a kid, as a teenager, um, you know, going to those places is probably more common than many of us like to think. Mm -hmm. But what do you think happens that we drift away from that as we get older? I, I think for a lot of us, you know, there's not a lot of encouragement. You know, if you're if you're going to write and you tell people you're writing poetry, the reaction tends to be from other writers as well as non-writers. Well, when are you going to do something significant? You know, I've, I've received that comment a number of times from people. And I don't think it was meant in a mean-spirited way. It's just poetry is not seen as something that modern people do and send out but I was fortunate I had a really good teacher in college who taught a poetry class and, and she required us to send our poems out by the end of the semester and she was really kind and encouraging but also very you know here's how you go about the business of sending poems out into the world and so it made it seem very a very reasonable thing to do. And so I sent those poems out and, you know, and, and as I was writing on my own, when I was, you know, first married to my husband and we were living in this little apartment and, you know, I, I was like, I want to be a writer. This is what I've wanted to do. And my husband, bless his heart, said, go ahead and do that. And so I did. And I started writing poems and, and they were 
kind of weird. You know, I was kind of touching base with dreams I was having and, you know, experiences I'd had. And I was like, these are very strange. I don't know that the New Yorker is going to want to see these from me or from anybody. And so I started doing research and I found a couple of small press magazines that did a lot of speculative poetry. So Edgar digested verse and the catbird seat places that, you know, they would look at more mainstream stuff, but they were also like, sure. Send us your weird mythology based poems. And it was exciting to have those acceptances to get actual copies of my poems in a, in a magazine that somebody had bothered to print, you know, that's intoxicating. And as you go further on, one of the great things about the speculative poetry field is they will actually pay you for your poems, which is not as true in the mainstream. And, you know, I, I like getting paid. (laughs) You know, I've, I've worked hard on my poetry and I think that, you know, like anyone who works hard at a craft, you want that sign that people value your work. And that's a very concrete sign. And so I love the speculative poetry field because I feel like there's a home for my work here. And it's a home where people show that they appreciate that work. Have you found that there are more magazines, more places to submit and, and find publication these days? Um, it's always in flux. So, you know, some zines will you know, lose funding or have issues. A a lot of magazines are very shoestring operations. You know, one person's doing it or a few people that are volunteers. So it's very hard to keep things going over a long period of time. Um, You know, there's some longer lasting publications. Strange Horizons Online has been doing great stuff for a really long time. You know, Analog and Asimov's have published my stuff and they've been around a long time. But there's also, you know, there's flux, people coming and going. And that's good in a lot of ways, I think, because every editor has their own vision of what makes a good speculative poem or a good speculative story. And so having that constant regeneration, it's frustrating when an editor leaves it's liked my stuff in the past. You feel like you're losing something. But, you know, new people come along all the time and their vision is important. And and it's exciting to see the field expanding to have more people from different walks of life, from different cultures, from different countries, having their work put out there for us to read. It's, it just enriches everything. Will you read us another poem? I would love to read you a poem. Let me. I say another poem because apparently we already had your debut with the bees. (laughs) All right. You had requested that I read still which was published in Liquid Imagination a couple of years ago. And was also nominated for a Pushcart Prize. I was so flattered. I really was. Tell us about that prize. I really don't know that much about it. Occasionally somebody will... Uh, it's, it's done by editors of magazines, small press. So small press editors will say, you know, these three or four poems that I've published this year are ones I think are of particular note. After that, I don't know what happens because they never get back to me about it. But 
it's one of those things where it, it feels like an honor to be nominated because it means that the editor that you've worked with of all the things that they published that year they feel that it's worth note beyond just their readership so that's that's exciting and flattering okay let's hear still sometimes the grief you have become takes up so much space in my chest i can hardly breathe for the lingering presence cut from stone burned from steel you are always one heartbeat away from a dream and i am one breath from disaster we met on the treacherous ground between holy sacrament and fay feast past bread like flesh hand to hand mouth to mouth and for all that i have no words from you still i carry you in my cells something from you makes up the walls that hold me together wait life peels that away science tells us sooner or later everything in the old being dies sloughed off for something new seven years is all we have of us just like in a tale and then the mouthful you gave me passes to memory and the air i breathed from your lungs becomes the world's quiet exhalation and even were that not true time etches deep lines into my face and i think if we met you would not see the woman i was in that moment even though she still lives perhaps in that morsel of bread i took from your hand tell us tell us about that what were you what were you going for when writing this poems always come from a bunch of different places i mean the like the good ones and i feel like that's one of the good ones so it deals i think with loss loss of you know a, a sense of spiritual home but also loss of a friend a person that i considered i myself very close to once and that feeling of displacement that comes with that and that we hang on to things but the world changes and we change and you can't go back to that person you were before and i like the idea of of the fey feast you know because there that's very you know food is very significant in, in all mythologies and folklores you know the the sharing of food the the idea that you know when you share food with someone that's a safe place you you've you've made a bond beyond just a meal and you know but it's also with the fey feast that's something that's kind of forbidden it's reckless it changes you in ways you might not like you know where at the same time you know you have you take the sacrament the you know communion in many churches you know that's taking into you something holy and so i wanted to kind of have that juxtaposition of life is complicated and life is constantly in flux what what makes you uncomfortable in your writing are there edges or boundaries that you deliberately try to push you know it's interesting because as i was preparing for this i was thinking about something a friend of mine said when she reviewed my second poetry collection and she said i would like if jennifer used more personal material in her writing and you know i mean 
criticism never feels good, right? But at the same time, I'm so grateful for her for saying that, you know, and, and saying it in a review because I don't think it was something that she would have felt comfortable saying to me face to face or, you know, emailing me. But it was it was a very honest and thoughtful take on my work that I was like, I want to change that. Because obviously everything I write, you know, it means something personal to me in some way. That's why I write, you know, I, I think ultimately most writers write for themselves first because there's something in you that needs to come out and that's how you process it. You know, I, I always say I write from the questions and not from the answers. I have something I'm doubting or something I'm afraid of or something that's, you know, I don't feel comfortable about and I, I need to work on it. So, you know, that got me thinking, well, how do I convey that when I'm writing so that other people understand that part of me? And so that was, you know, really, I think, an important moment in my progression as a writer. So that kind of leads me into one of the other poems I wanted to read, because it's, um, kind of digging into family history in some ways that, well, I think, I think when I read it, you'll be able to tell the part that made me uncomfortable, but I was glad I wrote it. This was, this is called Shark Attacks in Unlikely Places. And it was first published in Wondrous, Wondrous Real Magazine. Headlines scream that the killer remains at large, great white cruising off unfamiliar coastline, as if a remorseful shark ought to turn itself in, offer restitution while authorities trot out tired lines from a 70s creature's feature. Unprovoked, they say, as if we know enough of the sea or any place to make that determination. All I know is that Gran never let us swim out in the bay, only watched from the clifftop at low tide while we searched for sand dollars, dozens of them, our riches, and counted buoys and green-clad islands. The land belonged to our ancestors, but the sea belonged only to itself, and I worshipped its independence, the silvered threat of its depths. At twelve, I started to bleed during that week by the sea, salt and iron and humiliation staining the bubbles on a white bread bedspread. I washed it with hand soap and some tears, sister and cousin, helping me shift the heavy guilt of wet fabric and drape it on the line. Like a shark, Gran always sensed trouble, circled its sharp eyes, sharp-eyed and slow to forgive. Her long tide turned in the century, shadows looming too long to outrun. Time circles like a shark, blood calling it to the feast. Like mermaids, we three girls perched on a boulder as big as a playhouse, and built imaginary cities from clay we dug barehanded from beneath a crust of shattered shells and bits of shale thin and round as coins, perfect for skimming or setting up a fairy economy. We pretended to spot sharks, and sometimes we saw seals, selky dark heads rising wet and smooth in the deep waters off the point, where starfish cling to slabs of rock shaped like fantastic submarines. When I try to open my eyes underwater, salt stings, and my feet stir up silt in green-brown clouds. Whatever lives beneath the surface stays beyond sight, and a shark might as well be a horseshoe crab making its paleological path along the bottom. 
Once, at the aquarium in Booth Bay Harbor, I stood next to a tank like a backyard pool and let my hand hover over the surface. A dogfish, smallest kin of the local shark family, lifted its head from the water to brush my fingers, and then my son's, over and over. Maybe it was curiosity, or the electric charge of life to life, and Pule of Lorenzini, receiving the joy I broadcast at our acquaintance. Soon I will be a grandmother, and I promise to tell the children to swim in the cove. Chill waters will pebble their flesh and turn their lips blue, but the curling pull of undertow will never reach their fragile limbs, and seaweed will not slide around thin wrist or ankle and hold them deep until their lungs fill and their laughter only reaches me as the whisper of ghosts, barely heard under the screech and clamor of gulls. No shark will taste their tender flesh, nor pull them out beyond land to the true deeps. The wind carries decay in invisible arms, carcasses lifted on the tide, and bloating in summer's eye. That was beautiful. Well, thank you. And and I see what you mean about that personal element. It's, it, you know, it, it was, was so perfectly intertwined. Thank you. I was just, you know, that's the place and the space were so much a part of my life as a kid. And such it had such a formative influence on me. I mean, you know, I could I could say that now that I'm older, I probably should have realized, you know, when I was 12 and throwing sacrifices of the prettiest shells to the ocean, that there was maybe something strange about me that I should just needed to accept. But, you know, that I, as I was threading the poem together and it, you know, it grew out of a, a story, a news story that a woman was found who had been killed by a great white in the bay near where my grandmother lived, where we played as, as kids. And, you know, it would have been just a few miles across the water of, of the deep water where we seen the seals and, and things like that. And it was such a shock because we always joked about sharks in the water, but we couldn't imagine an actual shark being there and killing somebody. That was, that was just sort of horrifying. But it all, then it's sort of tied into all those fears you have as a kid, both, you know, the irrational fears of, of things in the water, but also the real fears of, of making people that you love mad at you because you've bled on their nice, their, their nice bedspread. <laughs> Well, yeah, and and examining, you know, the shame that shouldn't be a shame. Mm-hmm. No, I, I really like that. But, you know, you, you weave a lot of these darker elements that, that into your poems. Is there something in particular that, I guess, draws you to that? I don't, you know, I, I just... I wrote an essay about that for, for my Patreon because I was thinking about, you know, why, why the weird stuff? And, you know, the, it's the folklore I read as a kid, you know, my dad used to bring home the national Enquirer, and I, I loved all of the, the worst stories in there. The the first really big news story I, I remember vividly is, is, you know, people's temple mm. and what happened in Guyana. And, you know, it was, 
like horrifying and fascinating at the same time. And for a long time, I felt ashamed of that part of myself that was fascinated with that. You know, I, I can't explain it really, but you know, there's something in me that needs to think about that and needs to talk about it in my writing. And I think the thing that, that any writer realizes when they do it long enough is that you have to go where those deep emotions are. There's, you know, if you want to write something meaningful, if you want to write something that makes you happy with your work, then you have to deal with that difficult stuff and not be ashamed and not shy away from it. What is your advice to, and I'm not even going to say young people, because I think there is a growing movement of, you know, people in their 30s up to their 70s and 80s who are looking at poetry as possibly a an outlet as a way of working through stuff with a capital S. Um, <laughs> any advice for those people who are just looking at this as maybe, maybe I have something to say here? I, I think if you feel that urge enough to actually put words down, then you are a writer, you are a poet. And, you know, one of the things I love about the work is that there's no there's no end point you can always keep learning and growing as a writer you know i i love sports i love hockey but you you start to hear when somebody get, hits 35 no matter how good they are of well you know they're gonna have to retire soon their body just can't hold out too much longer you know and nobody says that about poets you know, as, as long as you can type words in, you can keep going. And I think, you know, that's whether you decide to share your words with other people or whether it's something you just do for yourself because it makes you happy, I think there's value in that. We, we are such a, a commercial and consumerist society. And I think that's why poetry has kind of gone out of fashion because it's, it's become a very niche thing for a lot of people and if you look back far enough everything was poetry all the great literature of the world you know whether you're talking about psalms in the bible or shakespeare or homer everything was poetry because that's how people remembered and so i think if we can get back to that idea of poetry is us reaching into those deep hidden painful places in ourselves and freeing something that needs to be freed, you know, there there's power there, but there's also healing. And if there's anything our world needs right now, it's healing. Jen, thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's it's always so much fun to talk with somebody about poetry because I love it so much. You can find out more about Jennifer Crow on her Facebook author page or on Twitter. Her handle is at right. Jen Crow. Time for some book recommendations. I just finished reading Charlie Jane Anders' short story collection, Even Greater Mistakes. 
If you're a fan of her work, especially her short fiction, you definitely want to read this. It's like a masterclass in writing. And if you're not yet a fan, it's a great introduction to one of the most talented writers in the speculative fiction genre today. And on the nonfiction side, I've just started it, but I'm very much enjoying Tolkien and the Great War by John Garth. This is a a biographical study that draws from Tolkien's wartime papers, and it explores how this period of life, World War I, uh, was so critical to his work in writing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and the other books. It's a meditation um, on turning trauma into art, and very fascinating how Tolkien was able to write something so epic and hopeful after the horrors that he experienced in World War War. So I cannot wait to get through this entire book and see how it turns out. That's all for this episode. I'm Crystal Siracus. I hope you join me next time when we go off the page. Mm-hmm.